Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this Readings and Black Ink quarterly essay event. My name's Sean O'Byrne, I work for the Readings Bookstore, and on behalf of the bookstore and on behalf of Black Ink, thank you for coming out on a warm late summer's night. I'm gonna say something about Laura Tingle first and then George. Laura Tingle, as many of you will know, is an editor for the Financial Review. She's the author of two previous quarterly essays. The, uh, the, the least recent uh, is called Great Expectations, Government, Entitlement and an Angry Nation. And then the last quarterly essay she wrote, the one before this uh, edition, is called Political Amnesia, How We Forgot to Govern. Now, George Megalogenis, as many of you will know, was a journalist for many years with The Australian. He is the author of The Australian Moment and Australia's Second Chance. And the quarterly essay is Trivial Pursuit, Leadership and the End of the Reform Era. And the new quarterly essay, the most recent quarterly essay, Balancing Act, Australia Between Recession and Renewal. Please make both authors welcome tonight. Um, well, good evening, everybody. It's nice to be back here. Um, hello, George. Hello, Laura. Um, no, very, very nice, Balancing Act, um, which I've just been reading amidst the uh, excitement that is the national capital at the moment. And um, it's interesting to me because a lot of the themes that George has put together so well in the essay are things that are really unfolding before us, I think, uh, in Canberra. Not you know, in the sort of uh, Senate, you know, blah, blah, double dissolution, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, there's, there's a swing in the pendulum going on, I think, about the way we're talking about politics, which is sort of generally being a bit lost in, the, in, in amongst the noise. And so I think um, George's essay is very timely in sort of, you know, highlighting some of those issues. So if we cut to the chase, as I see it, of this essay, George, um, you're talking about how we really need to think about a new role for government in the economy, um, which obviously means that you're a communist and you want a exactly. state takeover, but you know, <laughs> you know, we, 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 won't, we won't tell anybody that, but, no, but, um, but there, there's a lot more subtleties to it than that. Maybe you could just tell us about yeah. that. So the, quest the question of a more active government, which is, which is the terminology I, I sort of had to hit on, because if you use the word intervention, even though popular opinion wants the government to intervene. People want more of it, they, they want less politics in their lives, but they actually want government to help them more. And your, the first of your two quarterly essays talks about that, which is essentially public expectation of what government should do is out here. Uh, public willingness to fund is about down here, and the gap between the two is not just a deficit in, um, in, in public policy, it's also physically the budget deficit. But when I look at when I looked at the need for an active government, uh, there is, I'll, I'll, I'll cut to the chase firstly on the why it's good for politics. As soon as you ask a politician what it is that a government does, suddenly they'll look at you and go, but I do politics. Because they just realise as soon as you ask them what it is you actually do on behalf of the people of Australia, they realise that most of their time is spent doing politics. And one of the reasons why we don't like our politics is our politicians don't know what the role of government is. So trying to get that conversation started is, in a funny way, trying to help people who do actually want to be public servants in the end. They don't just want to be these kamikaze pilots that sort of run into their own parties, get the leadership for a couple of years, then get torn down. So that's, the, that's sort of the practical re-earthing the system reason, but that's not the primary reason. The primary reason is that the economic model that we've got 
and as it's been operating in the 21st century, up until recently, has been politician-proof. So the open model, which Laura and I have been writing about basically for our entire political, uh, our entire professional careers as journalists covering politics, the government no longer controls the four prices it used to control uh, behind the tariff wall, which is the exchange rate is floating, interest rates are set independently of government by the Reserve Bank, and that's a grown-up institution that, that if politics is getting ahead of itself, they'll use interest rates to pull politics back. Wages are negotiated at an enterprise level between boss and worker, and we don't have you know, an independent umpire of the Arbitration Commission basically setting every rage rate and every relativity between worker, and we don't have a tariff law anymore. So most Australian firms that are in what we call the traded goods sector uh, have to take a global price to stay competitive. So those four things, and as I said, we've been writing about this, it seems like forever, not only has it worked well, it actually explains a lot of our success in the, in the, in the early part of the 21st century. We've avoided a couple of serious shocks. The regional shock in the late 1990s, which is the Asian financial crisis. We avoided the tech wreck, the shallow recession the Americans had to begin the 21st century. And the model itself, its greatest, its greatest moment was avoiding the GFC in 2008-09. Well, basically, every bit of that model uh, sort of sung and help save the economy. But, and this is the big but, by the way, because clearly Laura thinks I've turned socialist in my old age, she doesn't. <laughs> the thing is, in this transition, coming out of a mining boom, with one of those four prices, which is interest rates set independently by the Reserve Bank, we now no longer have control over interest rates because we know that the global capitalist system is in a mess because of this big debt bomb that's still yet to be disarmed. Uh, US, Europe, Japan, and now China. So one of the prices is clearly not working, which is the interest rate lever. At the enterprise level, workers are just not getting decent pay rises anymore, even if they are coughing up more productivity. We won't mention Fairfax, but just quickly today, of course, you're going to cut your staff by third, presumably assume, uh, assume that the, those that remain are going to work harder for a bit less. I mean, I think that's the model, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Seems to be the model. Anyway, there are things in this open model that are not making sense for me at the moment. And the bit that's missing to me is the government. Now, where I want the government to go back, without sort of preempting too many questions, the government is now in a position where if it doesn't act, it can't stabilise the economy in the transition. It's basically surrendering our short and medium-term economic future to the gods, essentially to things that are not working around the world and to things that we know aren't working domestically. We know that our cities are getting a little too big now um, to run by themselves. We need an active state an active government, federal and state, yeah. to do the infrastructure. I don't want to get into too much detail, but the idea is the four bits of the model are exhausted by the present crisis, globally and, in capitalism, yeah. and the end of the mining boom. And is it, but I think what you're saying in the essay, which in some ways is, you know, I was starting to fumble towards in my essays as well, was yeah. we need to actually be able to say it's okay for government to, to do, do stuff. Exactly. Um, you know, it's, it's not even the next step of, well, what is it they do? I mean, you know, you and I might have ideas. I mean, and there's plenty of things that you can do. And then internationally, of course, there's been quite a change. You know, the IMF and the OECD, you know, used to be, uh, you know, cut, burn, destroy. Um, yeah, and they're, now, they're, now, talking this, they're yeah. now talking this sort of language too, aren't they? Yeah, so interestingly, and it begins in the US, and it's certainly the story in Europe, because we know, especially in Europe, what they did in the early phase of the GFC was they tried to cut their way to growth. 
through austerity. And a couple of European nations went into the GFC with government debt a bit over 100% of GDP, and that would have been Italy and Greece. Now, about seven or eight years later, there are half a dozen countries with higher debt levels than Italy and Greece went into the GFC with. So austerity hasn't quite worked. And the IMF, especially, are running around the world not telling them to balance their books. They're telling governments to borrow to fund infrastructure. Because until the government gets active in... And there's a lot of reasons why you'd want government involved in infrastructure. Fact is, your infrastructure isn't working in a lot of, of the major centres in the world. One of the reasons to do it is to actually stabilise the economy, to provide jobs for people that the market sector can't provide at the moment. But it, there's also something in here, George, which is interesting, which is um, people talk about uh, governments doing infrastructure, for example, yeah. uh, often as a way of promoting growth. But this is something slightly different. I mean, yes, growth is good, but it's also about changing the language to just actually say, well, markets aren't working. Yes. And, you know, we have to actually have specific interventions to make cities safer or to make them more efficient, to make them better places to live, for example. Um, which is, a, you know, after 20 or 30 years where we've just been talking about the budget bottom line, the CPI, oh, sorry, inflation numbers, growth numbers, to me, one of the really fascinating things about what's happening in politics is that the politicians are starting to talk about issues again, like yes. you know, negative yeah. gearing isn't about negative gearing to raise money for the budget first and foremost from Labor's perspective, it's about housing affordability. Yes. So, so that's the... And there's a, a lot of complementarity between the two essays, and I must admit the most grateful receipt in my inbox was the draft of your essay. So when I was writing mine that I didn't end up repeating stuff that you were going to get in there with first. So We'll argue about things later, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> the story, especially from the 80s onwards, has been about getting the government out of the way to fire up, to free up, essentially to free up investment and to free up individuals to make their own choices for their own future. And I think you could say that thing worked up to a point. Now we know, and this is a funny, it's a funny, a funny way to put this, when I say the model worked brilliantly in the GFC, the GFC also sent another message to us, and that is that the market system as we know it has clearly reached its end point. And the end point that it reached in the subprime story in the US and in the, and in the sovereign debt crisis in Europe is that a lot of the growth of the 80s and 90s and the early part of the 21st century is basically explained by households borrowing. And for a little while, that is a positive story to tell. And we know in our own, in our own very, very micro statistic, but it used to be the case that of the 70% of households that, that had, you know, owned their own home, somehow 40% were um, owned it outright, about 30% um, still owed some money to the bank. Intervening 15 years, that number flipped. There's a lot of people use their, use their property as a bit of a, as a, bit of a, a reverse mortgage. They use it as a credit card. So a lot of consumption in the last 10 or 15 years was borrowed. And there does come a point in any system where that borrowing hits the wall. Uh, prices don't keep rising. Why house prices don't keep rising in the case of the US. Or consumers in Australia just start to worry about the debts they're carrying. And the world economy starts to look a bit messy. They start to save again. They're not consuming. So having reached uh, almost a logical endpoint to that particular process, who drives growth? And it's, it's a weird thing to say when we've had uh, 25 years of uninterrupted growth, but the next driver of growth 
in our market-based economy, unfortunately for politicians, because it's a big burden for them, is actually the government, especially after China comes off, especially after the, not just China comes off, but the you know, sort of free ride of the mining boom is over. And the consequences of the market economy in Australia, we don't have quite the same problem with inequality that the rest of the world does because we've still got a relatively low unemployment rate. But the consequences of the market in Australia and a couple of things that governments have actually done wrong, they're intervening in places they shouldn't have been intervening. They're making investment properties tax preferred over pretty much any other investment. In our cities, the market is really only interested in doing one thing at the moment and that is putting apartment towers up. I know I can get a lot of head nods around here. Um, the market itself is moving, but it's not necessarily creating the sort of society we want to live in. And think I think that that's, that's, you know, that's sort of, the, that's sort of the, the big economic take on it. The practical take for politics is the stuff that they've been doing the last 15 years, which is write you another cheque, you know, cut another dirty deal here or there, that never gets them re-elected anyway. But I suppose the other thing about the SA is it, it highlights all the things that politicians don't talk about uh, that have a huge impact. Um, now you're talking about the towers going up, and um, which sort of brings us sort of sort of naturally to population. I mean, population has been this massive influence on growth, yes. um, and. You know, you're talking about two million people a decade, basically, have been coming to well, Australia. In the, in the last part, the last half of the 20th century, so basically the post-war migration program, which mm. is about two million a decade coming to Australia, about two-thirds natural growth, one-third net migration. Mm. And these are figures quoted by Ken Henry. Each of the last, each of the five decades after the Second World War, in the first decade of the 21st century, it's a bit over three, and the mid-range assumption, over three million in the first decade of the 21st century. And more than half is for migration, by the way. It's a complete sea change in the, in, in the source of our population growth. And obviously, a lot of it's come from China and India. And Ken Henry makes this point. Uh, we had a little bit of it in the TV show last year, for those who saw it, but fleshing the interview out for the sake of the essay. He said the political system couldn't handle an increase in, in Australia's population of three million over the first decade of the 21st century. Now, the midpoint, the mid-range estimates is for four million a decade by the middle of, mm. the, of this century. And when, when I talk about an active government, we haven't even begin to have, we haven't begun to have the conversation about how you cater for that population. Yeah. Well, the, the population has arrived and every so often it pops up, you know, do we want a big Australia, do we not? Yeah. And it's sort of seen purely in its own sort of little, little pod of, you know, oh, big population or not big population, but you make the point about, which I hadn't really thought about, about um, how it started to strain infrastructure systems, which has real world implications you know, which you've been seeing right here in Victoria yes. in election results because people are really pissed off they can't get to work. Yeah, and this is... Um, so is it two uh, election campaigns or yeah, just... It's, it's actually, it's affected three now. Um, I know what side of the river we're on. I'm, I live on the other side of the river, so the Frankston line is my, uh, is my train line. And uh, there might be some Labor people in this room that know what happened to them in 2010. They lost every single seat. Uh, down the Frankston line all the way down to Paran, or Hawkesburn, um, in the seat of Paran. And one of the seats they lost was the seat of Mordialloc, which is really, really hardcore tribal Labor seat. The coalition didn't even target that seat in the 2010 campaign. 
They had, they had no idea that there was this big swing on. Now, obviously, what was happening down that train line, if you're familiar with that train line, and this has been a story now for a number of years in Victoria, is that along Frankston, all the they're supposed to stop at every, every station on the way to the city. And I was getting on at Hawksburn, I was living out Hawksburn way a few years ago, and it took me an hour and a half to get to South Bank, to get to the Australian office in South Bank. I could have walked it in 15 or 20 minutes. <laughs> One train had passed, it'd be full. Another train had passed, it'd be full. Another train had passed, it'd be full. You can get very grumpy very quickly as a, as a high-income earning citizen of an inner-city suburb of Melbourne when what you're actually experiencing Another part of you is writes this great story of you know vibrant cosmopolitan city called Melbourne, and you know we're first choice now for the most important migrant on the planet, which is the educated Chinese and Indian migrant. We're getting them ahead of the Americans. So dig down a layer, and you ask Steve Brax, and you ask um, John Brumby. At the beginning of your term, like in 99, 2000, 2001, did it occur to you that Melbourne was about to become the cosmopolitan capital of Australia, like it was coming back? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Did it occur to you you might have needed to think about your public transport network? Now we do. <laughs> Ten years after the fact. So they lose the 2010 election for a reason that they hadn't anticipated. So they didn't think public transport was an issue. So there's a particular person who name won't be named, but if you get your hands on Joel Dean's book, uh, Catch and Kill, you'll see that there's good evidence there about how that thing went off the off the rails, literally. The Labor people looked at public transport as an issue and then decided, oh, well, only 7% of swinging voters are using public transport. It doesn't matter. It's not going to be an election deciding issue. The fact is more than 7% are affected by this story because most of them have stopped using the system because they can't get on the train. They lose the election because of public transport. The incoming Liberal government thinks they won the election because of the, the building industry. Ted Bailey was convinced that the reason he won that election, apart from the fact that they preferenced the Greens last, was of something that had nothing to do with why people were voting along the Frankston line. He spends two years before he loses his job, and then Dennis Napstein spends another two years before uh, losing an election, trying to get a, a big road project up that's going to impact everybody's life here. Now, there may be a really good economic case for it, but if you've got an implied mandate to fix the public transport system because your, your city is literally growing too fast and you're not, you know, it's, it's literally straining the very, the very, the very um, heart of the city. People can't get from A to B. And that has an economic, that has a deadweight economic cost. Market can't fix that, but market will whinge because market can't, <laughs> can't claim the full benefit of this growing population. So they get kicked out. But as we know, not only did they get kicked out, Everybody made it a referendum at the last election on roads versus rail here. So you had almost the most brilliant test case in what is supposedly the most cerebral, most balanced. You know, Pauline Hanson never got as far as the Murray, certainly never got into Victoria. In this state, they flipped a Labor government because it didn't take them seriously, and then they flipped a coalition government. But then after the election, this is where it really, from a public policy sense, this is the most annoying part of all. We write, we write the consortium for the road, a cheque for a billion dollars not to do the work, and we go back to a project that was first mooted about eight years ago, <laughs> the Metro Rail Link, which not a, not a scrap of work had been done in the intervening eight years. Now, the conduct of politics is the story here, isn't it? Mm. One side can see a problem here, another side can see a problem there, but, but the way politics interacts now, 
is that neither job is ever going to get done because they view infrastructure, which is a 20, 30-year story, no differently to a handout to this mm. voter or that voter or an appointment to this department or an appointment to this. But as you say, it's got to that point where they don't actually recognise, you know, what the drivers are here. You know? No, no, and I bumped into a former Labor uh, <coughs> minister, very, very senior Labor minister, under the body working on quarterly SO, and I was just trialling this anecdote about the about the sort of meltdown in the in the in the Brumby campaign over the issue of transport. I said, you must have been a bit annoyed when the Libs came in and then completely ignored your agenda. And he said, oh, I wouldn't worry about it, mate, that's just politics. Mm. So, so even to the practitioner who, who invested their entire life's work in a particular project, the fact that it didn't get up, yeah. it was no big deal to him. He mm. thought it was, that's just because he would have done it to them. The other one is the, uh, very, very quickly, the desalination plant which was completed by a Liberal government, and then the Water Minister said he, he made a point of telling everyone he would not take a single drop of water from it. So I have to do the compare and contrast with the Snowy Mountains. Can you imagine Menzies completing Chifley Snowy Mountain scheme and saying, but by the way, we're drawing no irrigation water from it, no electricity, because that was a Labor, that was a Labor, Labor. thing. Labor <laughs> policy. So, I mean, that's one of the sort of interesting, we're talking about population as one yeah. of those sort of unspoken things that affects um, politics. And one of the other really interesting trends or, or, or pictures you paint in the book, in the essay, is um, about the male and female stories of the economy, yeah. which are really interesting about the changing labour force uh, figures and how that plays out into politics. Yeah, this is quite a... Uh, luckily, because I haven't been in the daily media for about three years, I was looking at some of these statistics with a fresh eye, because when you're in the game, you're really sweating the next number and what the, what the implications are, say, for, for interest rate policy and what it's going to do for the budget bottom line. And we've all been distracted, I think, in the, in the sort of political economic profession by the mining boom. Mm. the big dips and the big rises in the mining boom. And uh, just quickly, back to the population thing. Population is one of the things we've ignored, and it's actually a bigger story in the long run mm. than, than uh, the iron ore price. But the second part to it is I decided to, because I sort of needed to figure out what had happened in the last 15 years, because everybody says we're in transition. In the last seven years, the, seven, the past seven of those 15 years of the 21st century, you get to a GFC with Survivor, but then there's sort of a weird thing coming after it, and, and a lot of people are still trying to get their head around what it means. So I thought I'd split the economy into the male side and the female side, look at the jobs that have been created for men over the last 15 years and looking for the jobs created for women over the last 15 years. And they give you a really, really good gauge on what's actually happening in the real world. So there's been a big surge in full-time employment over the last 15 years. Something like 900,000 of the 1.5 million full-time jobs have gone to men. And this is the first time since the 60s that men have taken more new full-time jobs than women. The first time since the 60s, which unto itself is a, is a very interesting figure. Because the story of the intervening 30 and 40 years of you know, men with blue collars losing their spot on the middle of the income ladder. But one in three of those full-time jobs are in construction. There's been a net loss of jobs in manufacturing, which is basically balanced off by an increase in the number of jobs in mining to men, and agriculture's fallen off. And the other big one is the professions, which I'm surprised by, mm. pleasantly surprised, but still, I'm surprised by it. 
Um, the next biggest employer is not mining after construction, it's the professions, which is lawyers, accountants, computer programmers, real estate agents, whoever, right? Not doctors, because they counted another category. But basically, the thing you would, uh, you think you would expect with a sophisticated 21st century service-based economy is happening, except in politics, the language is about Tony's tradies, mm. and it's about the Hansonites. So th we're just talking about the male sides. These guys, are probably all voting green now if they're age, you know, in their 20s and 30s, have not been talked about at all. But first thing, we think about vulnerability. I really worry about that construction side of the economy. I worry about what happens if there's a shock from China and there's no plan B from the government. Because once you lose those guys, they go from, you know, relatively generous six-figure salaries and they've been earning this money for the last 10 and 15 years and they're heading households that have borrowed like no one's ever borrowed before in an Australian household in our economic history. What happens to them when they lose work? We know what their you know, older brothers, their uncles and their fathers did when they lost their jobs in the 80s and 90s. We know what they did. They almost destroyed the joint politically because mm. Hanson came out of that. So looking at the male side of the economy, one of the reasons why the argument for infrastructure, I'm quite, you know, uh, for want of a better term, I'm relatively confident that there's, a, that there's, a, that there's a, not just a social story to tell but a very, very important economic story to tell. If the government doesn't have jobs for them, when their jobs run out, when the mining boom runs out, we're in trouble. Now on the female side, here's, here's the thing I didn't expect to find. So I kept thinking that the story on the female side is the story of the 20th century. Uh, highly educated women entering the workforce, going into the professions. We know basically up to the age of 65 there are many more women with tertiary degrees than there are men. I mean, it stands to reason women are smarter than men. I think we can say that safely, fellas, around the room. We can say that. Um, there hasn't been all that much on the f female side at the top end. There hasn't been, and there's a, there's a bit of a levelling off in female participation. So there is some upside there if you can get more women into work. And I checked our participation rate against Canada's and New Zealand's, and we are a long way behind mm. in terms of women. But one in three of the jobs created on the female side of the economy is in healthcare and social assistance. So is there, there, is, is there a, same, a similar mismatch, you know, with the Tony's tradies language yeah. um, on the female side? Absolutely. I think there is, there is. What's the mismatch on the female side? A lot of it is, is, is for a particular, a particular woman in a household going back to work after having kids. So it's a question of, you know, how much money to get into her hand um, when she's back working part-time. There's a, an older woman story, which is the healthcare and social assistance. A lot of that jobs growth yeah. is in, in much older women coming back to work after a long time out of the workforce, but they're in very, very marginalised part of the economy. Yeah. So they're, you know, basically in aged care or, um, well, they're in childcare, nursing and a few other things. But th this is not, I mean, their jobs are safe, but they're not good jobs, mm. if I can put it that sure. way. So, um, I mean, the essay is called uh, Australia, Balancing Act Australia Between Recession and Renewal. Um, just, what, what's your feeling? I mean, you talked a bit about uh, property bubbles and things before. Um, I suppose one of the questions that's interesting to me, and I don't know what the answer is. Because um, I'm going to ask you back, yeah. <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> but one of the questions that's interesting to me is, if we end up having a recession, uh, where will it come from? Will it be, will it be, you know, okay, you can say it'd be China, but how does it actually hit us? 
and uh, you, you talked about construction workers, but I mean, w what do you think it would look like? Yeah, this is, so neither of us would ever make a prediction, right, no. about something like this. We literally have been around long enough to have seen much smarter people than us in our game make mm. crazy predictions about recessions yep. or recoveries. Yeah, no, and, and I'm not asking you for a yeah. recession, but it's more, you know, where does this what sort of lead? What will it look like? And mm. you'd what think, are the structural It'd have to end sooner or later. It's going to end sooner or later because countries do not grow into a third and a fourth decade without the interruption of a recession. So, interestingly, when I'm interviewing for the television show, Glenn Stevens and Ken Henry and, and Ian McFarlane would say, do you know people get hung up about the definition? It'd be not, if we're going to have one, it'd be nice to have what we call a soft landing, which is unemployment does not race ahead. And it's possible to have one of those things if the government is prepared to step in. But your question is more about what will it look like. So going into the GFC, which is a shock that no one saw coming, but everything was lined up for us to succeed because we were on the right side of the world, supplying China and receiving their citizens not just tourists, but especially the migrants. We had a budget in surplus. We had relatively high interest rates that could be cut credibly in a crisis. We had the exchange rate doing what it was supposed to do, and employers reduced the hours worked. So there were all these reasons why we could think our way through that particular crisis. But seven or eight years later, we have what, to my mind, looks like a property bubble. Is it a property bubble in Sydney? It look, looks like one, but... It, it does look like one. It's only a bubble if it bursts and prices collapse, mm. so it may not actually be a bubble. It may fizz rather than burst. But in the last four years, since interest rates started coming, again, coming down again the second time, and this is the bit about the bit where the model's exhausted, the Reserve Bank really has very little room to move. Mm. It's cut interest rates... All, it's cut the cash rate all the way down to 2%, which is, what, a percentage point lower than it was in the emergency of 2008-09. So we've got lower interest rates today than we had in 2008-09. So each of the last four years, on average, the established house price in Sydney at auction has gone up 15% a year. 15% a year for four years. Now that is That's quite crazy. scary. Yeah. Yeah. About half that rate here. So we've got, if Sydney is, if Sydney is, is where it's going to start, if it's China plus a domestic imbalance, which is essentially too much activity in housing, and we borrowed for it, uh, it is possible, even if we have a soft landing, that we're going to have a very long soft landing. If that, does that make sense? Yeah. It could be, we could be, we could be subpar for a long time after it happens, because one of the things, one of the things we haven't talked about much is the household debt that people have, people have borrowed a lot. But I, I, I suppose I wonder sometimes whether we've been having a recession and we just haven't noticed because yeah. we have been having what's called an income recession yes. because the terms of trade have fallen, um, you know, wages haven't been going up is an obvious sign of it. Um, and unemployment's been creeping up. It's been creeping up. And I sort of sometimes wonder, will that actually sort of in some ways insulate us a little bit because it has probably put a bit of a cap on how much people can borrow and as you say... It's it, is, it is possible. So if... If you get your definition right and you think we're in, we're in the soft landing already, then the question isn't, are we going to have one? It's, are we going to be all right when we get out? Mm. And it's possible we will be all right if we get out in, in that respect. But the IMF in their report last year on the Australian economy, they estimated that property prices across Australia are overvalued by 10%. So your, 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 your worst-case scenario is... Uh, a fall on house prices with huge 
confidence effects. So households look at the falling value of their home and go, right, I'm not spending anything. And then that, even if, you have, even if you're in the middle of a recessionary episode at the moment, suddenly that becomes stagnation, which becomes a different, a different, order, of, uh, a different order of problem. I honestly don't know, but when, uh, take it back a step, when I look at the jobs that have been created, the most vulnerable worker in Australia today is the best paid labourer that we've ever had, which is the construction worker. Um, interestingly, you've got a coalition government wanting to hammer their union and lock up all the union officials. Uh, if, if I were them, I'd be more doing the risk assessment of what happens to these guys if they lose their jobs, not can I lock up the head of their union. I think that maybe they're, they're probably focusing on the wrong thing, if I could put it that way. And, and the construction workers now, where, where are they in the country? Because, I mean, obviously you had a lot of people working on the big resource projects, but, you know, where, where are they geographic? Are they spread across the country? Yeah, well, they have, it, it, it's sort of, there's two phases to this story, because there, there was a lot of people moving, say, from, from regional Australia and from Queensland. So WA was pulling a lot of these workers simply because WA was doing what it was doing, um, and it was growing a lot faster than every other state. But even here, there's, been, there's still, notwithstanding the fact that the Victorian government's been pretty slow off the mark both sides, there's still been a, a fair bit of construction activity here. But most of them now are in New South Wales, because mo uh, most of the construction activity in the last couple of years is in and around Sydney. It's not just towers, there's also a fair bit of belated infrastructure work going on in Sydney. Um, so, what happens to them? Yeah. Up in Queensland, I'd imagine they're already as close as you possibly get to a recession. South Australia probably is as close as you get to a recession. Tassie's already in recession, and, and WA is coming off a big high, so there's a, a very rapid slowdown. The only two, the two states in the, in the country, Victoria and New South Wales, will decide whether it's a... I think and it's, it's ever been thus, hasn't it? Mm. You know, okay. These two states will decide Disparity. whether it's a deep one or a, or a soft one. Sure. If somehow we can find a way to keep them, to keep them going, uh, we, you know, we'll sort of muddle through. Right. Um, there is, you know, it just when you look at the complexity of the unemployment story around the country, though, there's a, still a lot of guys who, who aren't physically able, who don't have a, a tertiary degree, who have pretty much disappeared off the stats because the uh, participation rate for young men has, has been falling even through the boom. And you do have these um, pockets. Um, I mean, I think uh, the Jenny Macklin paper that was released yeah. yesterday talks about this, and um, I've done a piece for the Financial Review with Terry Moore and for Saturday about it as well. But you know, you've got pockets like around Geelong, Broadmeadows, yes. where the unemployment rate is 20%. Now, most people would just say, what? 20%? How could it be 20%? And they're different. I mean, some of them are amongst older workers, but yes. some of them... Amongst younger it's, workers, it's youth, yeah. youth, basically youth unemployment, and you're looking about people, talking about people who won't ever really get out of it um, yeah. on, on most yeah. projections. So yeah. we've, still got, we've still got, you know, these wild differences around the country. Yeah. And, it's, and it's been, just quickly, it's, yeah. it's one of the reasons I think it's been easier to be in opposition than in government, mm. because of the complexity of the story over the last 10 to 15 years, but especially since the GFC, because a lot of the political volatility came after the Great Escape, it's very easy to nitpick on the problem. And there's no onus on you in opposition, apart from you just get the attention, to come up with a solution, because you, basically what you're doing is articulating that there's something wrong. It's only when you get in the government and you think it's easy because you think they're idiots that you've just knocked out, knocked over, and then you come into government and suddenly 
these problems are actually more real than you realise, mate. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is a very excellent segue to um, my next little uh, you know, section of questions. Um, when you're talking about, um, you talk, let's talk about Malcolm. Let's, let's um, talk about Malcolm. And uh, you say, uh, to inspire a similar, trend, oh, sorry, um, uh, our political history offers little comfort to Turnbull because the governments which transformed the economy in the past were Labor, not Conservative. The first was led by John Curtin, the second by Bob Hawke. Both had treasurers who were their equal and who succeeded them as Prime Minister. In each case, Labor had consciously changed its governing culture in response to a global catastrophe. The key members of the curtain Chifley government lived through the collapse of Jim Scullin's Labor government during the darkest years of the Great Depression. The Hawke-Keating ministry witnessed the implosion of Gough Whitlam's government. On both occasions, Labor remade itself in opposition before it returned to power. To inspire a similar transformation in a coalition government, Turnbull has to convince his colleagues that they have already failed in office. Now, that's an interesting <laughs> observation. Um, maybe you'd just like to explain a little bit about that. Isn't that one of those lines that, you know, reads well and then you ask it, but when you ask the author, <laughs> you oh, obviously I, I mean, there's a, obviously a lot of meaning in there, but, you know, I'd be comfortable just letting the record stand. But no, no, I will, I will engage. Hmm. Tony Abbott obviously lost the Liberal leadership for reasons of, you know, for internal reasons. So basically, he didn't govern well. And, but the other reason he lost the leadership in the end, he wasn't popular internally, but even though I don't comment on opinion polls, but Malcolm Turnbull made the point when he challenged that they'd been behind in, you know, six trillion news polls since the 2014 budget. So here's the thing, the budget had, it wasn't just a breach of faith, I think, that budget. The idea of that budget was that the government was telling Australians in a transition that you're on your own. That was the idea of that budget. The strangeness of that budget, the weirdness, the, economically, it was a very weird document. Even though there was some pretty out there cuts, the bottom line didn't improve. <laughs> And, it, and I remember, I, I think I wrote at the time, this is a government that behaves as if it's got all the time in the world. You know, yeah. It really was a, a budget that was full of so many nasties, but, but as you say, didn't actually achieve anything. It didn't achieve, it there was, was nothing some, to show for it. It was something they, were going, they thought they were going to be there for at least six, if not nine years minimum. Yeah, and they, um, so they've sort of, a couple of things they tolerated, which told me that they didn't actually understand what they were dealing with. And this sort of gets to the point of Turnbull needs to convince his, his side that, that basically their governing model is not fit for the times. Mm. Um, not only did the deficit, the bottom line, not improve, in fact, the unemployment rates is also drifting up, and they're looking at these two things, bigger deficit, higher unemployment rate. Normally, uh, Phillips Curve would tell you <laughs> if the government is spending more, the unemployment rate should come down, maybe you get a bit of inflation. So there's clearly something not working in the economy, and their policy settings for all the political heat they're taking are not actually getting them to where they're telling themselves they're trying to get the country to some more sustainable footing. So something's not working. So convincing someone who holds power that they've already <coughs> blown it is a very, very difficult thing. But I mean, I know why I wrote that. I wrote that because Realistic, realistic political scenarios for Malcolm Turnbull is a re-election with a reduced majority, but without a mandate that changes the way the country's run. 
I mean, he's changed the conversation. He's obviously a much cheerier Prime Minister, the cheeriest we've had since the first iteration of Kevin 07. But that the way the, way the government conducts itself doesn't actually substantially change. And the sort of right wing of the party that has, you know, taken potshots at him now on some of the smallest issues, um, and they're feeling pretty, pretty gung-ho about it because everyone's going to give them almost equal airtime. A couple of backbenchers are getting equal airtime to the Prime Minister at the moment and more airtime than the Treasurer mm, at the moment. A $100 million programme. Yeah, mm. over a $100 million programme. Mm. So if that's, if, that's, if that's what happens, if that's, the, if that's your sort of your, your, your baseline um, prediction for the election, What's a second term government, term of government going to look like? They're going to come after him, aren't they? Well, I think that this is the really interesting thing. I mean, you could end up with this worst of all worlds uh, scenario where uh, Malcolm Turnbull either uh, just has a very small ma uh, majority or actually ends up running a minority government. Great. I mean, of, co of course, there's also a possibility that Labor will win because nobody expects them to. I mean, yep. that's changed. That has a bit. happened before. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you, people could be so convinced that Labor will never win, they'll give them a kick. But at the moment, you know, all the sort of suggestions seem to be that uh, the coalition will is still a bit ahead. But he could end up with, um, with sort of a defined opposition in the Senate. Yeah. Um, which is a, an increased number of coalition senators. And I don't know if you all remember Barnaby Joyce when he was effectively the balance of payments... Um, balance of payments? I keep saying that. The balance of power Deficit. senator. Um, but I just want to bring you back to... How with does all of that, his colleagues? Well, it, there's that, but, you know, we've had this sort of, sort of crazy debate about tax cuts mm. and the budget. And uh, you sort of say in the essay that um, the cost of neglecting fiscal policy is a big lesson to be drawn from the Howard era, that Howard changed the budget from being a document primarily concerned with the economy to one that was overtly political. Now, you could debate you know, the extent to which they've been political for a while before that, but yeah. he, he really did it on steroids. But there's now all this expectation that somehow, um, like the miracle of the juniper bush, Malcolm Turnbull's going to bring down a transformative budget, but what we know about the way the budget's going is he doesn't really have a lot of room to move, does yeah, he? He doesn't have a lot of room to move. So one of the things about convincing your own side that you failed already is what, what the budget looks like today and what it looked like in the, in, the, in the first two years of the Abbott hockey government and what it looked like in the previous five years of the Labor government after the GFC. There's a really big problem on the revenue side, which is too many tax cuts were given away in the good times when the mining movement was underway. Much more was given away than bracket creep. So you hear this conversation from time to time, we've got to do, give people a tax cut because they're getting a lot of bracket creep. Well, they're about 20 or $35 billion a year better off depending on which measure you use than they were at the beginning of the last uh, decade. Now, I remember there were some budget lockups in about 2005, 2006, and I'm on the Australian, you're not on the Australian at the time. And I can tell you what was happening in those lockups. Every one of us, and we're all on pretty generous salaries, are going, ooh, I didn't, I was a bit contrary, but they're all going, ooh, getting another 100 bucks a week? Mate, this is fantastic. They're all, you know, paying the very top rate of tax, and most of us have been brought down to the second top rate. I don't think I paid the top rate. I think I paid the top rate going in to the 21st century, but I left journalism paying the second highest rate, which tells you something about how generous those tax cuts were. So there's a hole in the budget on the revenue side. But we've got a lot of other things happening on the spending side. We haven't just got you know, a whole lot of favours from past governments, which are very difficult to take off voters. We've got an ageing population. 
We've got an economy in transition. We've got a rising unemployment rate. So spending is going to be drifting up. Even if you're able to put a cap on it, you still can't solve the other problem, which is what are you going to do with the revenue side? The conversation we've had for the first six months of the Turnbull government is how to recreate the vibe of the Howard era, which is big tax cuts. And maybe something that looks brave on paper, a GST, but I'm going to give you more than I take from you because I'm going to overcompensate you. Because what we do, and I'm going to overcompensate you. Mm. I think to go into, and this is the, I must admit, this is the single most disappointing thing about Turnbull from a policy sense is that he seems at a Malcolm level, which is obviously a more cerebral level than what the hockey Abbott experience was. They looked at what Labor did and thought, well, they're hopeless. As soon as we get in, we'll be able to fix it. And they couldn't because Labor's problems were big problems because there are big problems to solve. Turnbull has come into government thinking, I could just do the tax mix switch. I'd sprinkle a bit of fairy dust on the revenue side of the budget. And somehow we're going to get revenue rising, more tax cuts than you've seen since the Howard era, and somehow the books are going to be balanced. To his credit, though, he's looked at it and he's gone, doesn't add up. He's looked at it and he's gone, hang on a minute. He should have. He should, he should have, have known, but he should have known this going into it. He should have known it, but do, do, should we also give him some credit for actually going, this isn't going to fly, fellas? Yeah, I, this is... As a, I, I actually do think, to his credit, he's, he's able to pull them, pull them out of what could have actually been a death dive. So you can imagine politically you're going to go for a GST and it's almost impossible when your budget's in deficit and you're not actually base broadening, you're just increasing the rate on those things that are already taxed. But even taxed. on tax cuts, you know, I mean, because this had been going on for a couple of years, yeah. you know, but, you know, there, there's, you know, he, to sort of basically, even if they sneak the message out to say, oh, we're not actually going to have tax cuts, despite the fact we said we were going to have tax cuts. I mean, he's, it also does give him an opportunity, though, oh, doesn't he? he, he look, um, this, is, this is the before and after the election story. So the, he's almost got us into a position of saying half of what, I'm, what the two of us have been trying to argue for mm. a few years now, which is if you can reframe the conversation, the government isn't just about giving you money. Mm. and finding some sneaky way to pay for it, which is essentially the way a lot of governments have behaved on both sides for a number of years now, to thinking, well, I'm collecting this money and I'm investing it on your behalf. I'm obviously doing a lot of social safety net stuff, age pension, family payments, disability and the, and the like, and unemployment benefits, but in essence, I've, you've gifted me this money as a taxpayer and I'm going to reinvest it on your behalf. I'm not giving you some of it back and calling it a tax cut, and you're going to look at me and go, well, I still can't get from A to B in Melbourne or Sydney. Mm. Um, that part of it, I'm <laughs> luckily enough, in a weird way for him, he's now lowered expectations so far, basically the way they've been behaving the last few weeks. Um, if he came out at the other end and said, oh, by the way, this is what I've been planning all along, mm. you, just, you people haven't been paying attention, mm. it, could be, it could be a very plausible story. But this is the bit, because I'm conscious of what I wrote. If he redefines the role of a Liberal government, I, if, he can, if he can create the idea that a Liberal government can be more active, you know, whilst respecting the open model, um, that is the single biggest contribution the Liberal Party would have made in the last 50 years to public policy, if he can get that right. If he can do it before the election and claims a specific mandate for that job, then all that other stuff is going to be easier to manage in the second term. Because yeah. at the moment, it's not his government, is it? No. It's essentially, it, it's, it's it, essentially it, a caretaker. But it does give him a, a capacity to claim a centrist mandate, yeah. which would deliver him some electoral authority with which to um, do yeah. the nut jobs in. Now, time is ticking away. 
Oh, did I say nut jobs? Oops, that just slipped out. Um, so uh, we've probably got time for a couple of questions, if somebody's Thanks, got Kate. some questions to ask. Yeah, um, do you want to do the microphones? Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Uh, gentlemen, I'm sorry. Um, I'm very. I've read both your your books, and I'm very impressed with them. In fact, they're quite complimentary, aren't they? Would you yeah. not agree? I think, it's, yeah. I think in the context of what you spoke about yeah. the yeah. the the dumbing down of the of the public service, as opposed to a political era which has lost the plot. Now, we've talked tonight about what's happened. We're not talking about what we want to happen. And I'm asking you, if I just get my glasses, might be a minute. George, in your, in your um, essay, you said, the electoral cycle runs too quickly for the investment cycle. Yep. And until the parties adopt a more mature approach, each government will be condemned to repeat the errors of its predecessor as it tries to rewrite the nation's infrastructure policy from scratch. That's the bottom line, mate. That is, I mean, That's the bottom line. And what I'm asking you to, to, to just expand for me, what do you understand by maturity? Is the federal system actually working? with the Liberal government in power and the Federal and the Labor governments in the state, infrastructure being the control of the, of the states rather than... There's, there's overlap I, in a couple of areas, but yeah, it's, it's, essentially, it's essentially a two-tier story. It is a Federal and state story. And when I wrote that section, I mean, the recommendation later is that at some, at some point you have to depoliticise the... the the identification of economic need and risk assessment, you know, business case for particular infrastructure projects. You have to find some way, and Infrastructure Australia is not doing that job now. No, um, it's just basically a wish list for developers. Um, you know, and the developer, its business case essentially give me some taxpayer funding, I'll be able to make a pay for you. Yeah, anyway. I think only, what's the story? On the list of Infrastructure Australia projects, I think only two have had a proper business case and about 90 haven't. Mm. I may, the, um, the number so might be wrong, but it, there's like some that. weird order of magnitude. So as a first step, politics has to, and this before we go to the federal state issue, politics ha politicians have to find a way to let go. And this was the big lesson of the 80s and 90s. One of the reasons why we can, we can look back fondly on this era now, even though it was obviously a very difficult governing time, is that a Labor government, a pro-market Labor government, gave up power on things where the government was causing more harm than good with the things it controlled, exchange rates, um, tariffs, uh, wages, interest rates. One of the issues in infrastructure is that, as I said, politics is going so fast now that we're now in a situation where we weren't even 10 or 15 years ago. So I don't think, I don't think an incoming Labor government, even though they probably didn't like the... Uh, Al Spring to Darwin rail line. I don't think an incoming Labor government, I can't remember Kim Beasley saying, I'm basically going to pull up stumps on this project. Mm. He's a bit old school. He would have thought, I got to, you know, the taxpayers invested, whether I liked it or not, we're going to have to see this project through. To stop that political churn on ideas, you've almost got to take the generation of the idea outside of the system. 
So I argue for a sort of a reserve bank style, but it's just an institution that is invested with enough authority that they can start telling the public what works and what doesn't work. So we don't have every second year somebody saying a very fast train or this or that. But then politics should make the decision, but after the business case has been done in a depoliticised way. But the second issue, to, so I don't want to hold you up too long, the second issue is the federal-state financial relationship does need to be rethought. Uh, and in fact, it was a, almost a level of detail. I think both of us have got a feeling that this is where the next big sea change in public policy is, but it's almost another, it's almost unfortunately another subject. Another <laughs> essay. Once you start the, essentially, once you start the conversation, if, if between us we can, get, we can get people thinking about reactivating, you know, basically reinvesting the public service, reconnecting corporate memory, thinking the, the past actually matters, not something that you just blow off because you're the most recent arrival, a power figure in the Prime Minister's office, and you can tell everybody that's been before you they're useless because I'm the best thing that's ever happened in this, in this show, and it would never get finished without me. You know, that sort of character. There's a lot of them now. If we can get an idea of public service back again, and we also get an idea the government has to find out what it is it can do in the real economy, um, hopefully we can get some of these other, the more complex answers done, because in a funny way, you almost have to throw that argument out to them anyway, because they'll probably know more than we might. Sure. Maybe. Okay, one more question. Thanks, sorry about the longish answers. Laura, thanks. Both of your quarterly essays have been excellent reading. Um, but George, just in regards to education, what can be done with education to help boost the Australian <laughs> economy, other, other than Gonski? There's a, that's a whole, that's almost a whole other, you didn't ask the question because it's in the essay. Um, one of the sea changes for a Liberal government is to stop, is to top, stop playing favourites with the private school system. It's actually, we're now almost at this catastrophic social cohesion point where because of the quality of the migrants that's coming in, they've got no issue. They'll land on top of the social struggle, on top of the income ladder. The local-born kids that aren't in the private system, that are getting shortchanged in the public system, are not going to be able to keep up, not just with the kids in private schools, but with the newly arrived migrant. And this is something we haven't had before. And whilst I'm a big Australia guy and a big open Australia guy, uh, relatively speaking, pro-market guy and very, very big on migration. You never want to put yourself in a position where 10 or 20 years from now, you've created uh, an aggrieved local-born white, in inverted commas, population. We've seen how that works in America and it's never been our story. And, uh, you know, the bomb I'll, you would want to put under conservatives is to actually, in fact, you can have them as a voter, by all means identify with them, but once you identify with them, make sure you look after them, and especially their kids, and that means reinvesting in the public system. Gonski is kind of like a, you know, a this way, that way, you know, within a very narrow funding envelope. I think there's two big sea changes I'm talking about, and it involves a big re-engagement from government. The infrastructure story, to get it right, is going to cost a lot of money, which has to be borrowed. The education story is going to cost a lot of money too. I do not buy this argument that quality of outcome is not correlated to spending. Um, there is a very, 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 very um, awful story to tell in the next 20 years because we can see it coming. You'd hate to say I told you so on this one. You can say I told you so on a number of other things in, in, in policy because 
in the end, it doesn't matter that much because it'll correct at some point. You can't correct this if you let it get out of, you get out of hand. It's too late. Yeah. It's, it is very warm. So thank you very much for coming along on a warm night. And please uh, join me in thanking George for talking about his essay. <laughs>